0: why are you here there are those who would say that you and I are here on earth to make money at least that's the way that we would live our lives right we get caught up in an endless cycle of work to get money to buy things and then need more money so we work turn money to buy things it's kind of an empty purpose right Just repeating the same things over and over in an endless cycle that has, to some extent, no purpose. And certainly there are necessary things that we need to do, and God has commanded us to work. I'm not discounting that. But if your life is simply about you making money, that's an insufficient purpose. Others would say, well, it's not about making money, it's about making memories. So you do things so that you'll be remembered. But you know what happens? The people that you do them with grow old and die and they forget you and you are forgotten. Even those who have done things in the past, good, bad, or otherwise, their statues crumble or fall or are torn down. Books are written and rewritten. Making memories is an insufficient purpose for which to live life. Maybe your purpose for living life is something else. It's not making money, it's not making memories, it's something else. But if it's not what this passage calls us to do, then it too is an insufficient purpose. What is it that this passage calls us to do? Love God with everything, love your neighbor as yourself. That's the way that Jesus summarized it, right? But let's see first how this looks in its Old Testament context. Robert read for us, verses 1 through 17 of chapter 20. I want to read for you the end of chapter 23, verses 20 through 33, because these two things, I think, uh, form the bookends for all of what God is going to say here to the Israelites. Chapter 23 of Exodus, starting in verse 20. Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and bring you into the place which I have prepared. Be on your guard before Him and obey His voice. Do not be rebellious toward Him, for He will not pardon your transgression, since My name is in Him. But if you truly obey His voice and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. For My angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will completely destroy them. You shall not worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. But you shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will remove sickness from your midst. There shall be no one miscarrying or barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion all the people among whom you come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets ahead of you so they will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites before you. I will not drive them out before you in a single year that the land may not become desolate and the beasts of the field become too numerous for you. I will drive them out before you little by little until you become fruitful and take possession of the land. I will fix your boundary from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the river Euphrates, for I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They shall not live in your land, because they will make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Why is this important? Because this, alongside what it says in Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, uh, sets, uh, describes God's purpose and program for the nation of Israel. They are presently at Mount Sinai. They are going to be in the wilderness. And then God is going to bring them to the land. And God in bringing them to the land is going to require certain things of them. And those things that he requires of them are the things that are laid out in chapter 20 through 23. But it's said in the context of you've been taken out of Egypt. You're now traveling to the place that I'm going to give you then you're going to dwell in the land, and I will dwell with you. And that's sort of the broader idea in the book of Exodus. They're not yet in the land by the end of the book of Exodus, but God is dwelling with them in the tabernacle, right, in Exodus chapter 40. And so that's what this is driving toward. But what does it look like for them to be God's people, dwelling both now in the wilderness and later in the land? What does it look like? Well, there's a lot of parallels to what we looked at in Sunday school from Matthew 5. What does it look like for someone to be a part of God's kingdom? What does it look like for someone to be a part of God's people dwelling in the place that He appointed for them? There's a lot of parallels between those two things. In Matthew 5, it was, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here, God lays out His expectations for His people. And the first section of it can be summarized as, Love God with everything. You'll notice in verses 2 through... 12, there are reasons given for each of the first five commands. There are different people who have broken down the Ten Commandments in different ways. Some have said it's four and six. Some have said it's five and five. Some have said it's uh, two and eight. I think the most natural division is between the ones that have the motivations, the reasons given that are largely pertaining to serving God and then the other ones that are more related to how we interact with those around us. Obviously, the one about honor your father and mother sort of bridges both because it is tied to worship of God, because we're honoring the authority set over us in terms of what God has established, and it also deals with our relationship with people because fathers and mothers are people. And so that one is sort of a transitional one between the two groupings. Love God with everything. First of all, no gods before God. Verse 3, no other gods before me. I would argue that the reason for this is given in verse 2, that it comes before this first commandment. The rest of them, the reason all comes after. Why should they have no other gods before God? God is the true God. God's the one who took them out of the land of Egypt. Not Ra, not the Ashtoreth of the Canaanites, not Dagon of the Philistines. God. God. God's the one who took them out of the land of Egypt. That's why there should be no other gods before him, because there are no other gods beside him. What are some examples of how this is developed? If you look later in chapter 20, verses 24 through 26, this command is not merely restricted to no other gods, but there are also regulations for how to worship the one true God. Verses 24 through 26 talks about making an altar, make the altar in a particular way. Make it of earth. If you make it of stones, don't form them with your tools, your hammers and your chisels. They're uncut stones. Don't make steps where you're coming up and you uh, expose yourself in your sinfulness and your nakedness before God. These are the regulations for worship. No other gods. Here's how to worship the one true God. Do we sometimes think that there are other gods I think we struggle more with the second commandment the one about idolatry making images and all those sorts of things but in so doing we should not forget about the first commandment there is one true God our society would say that there are many gods that there are many ways to God this is a lie there is one God who took the Israelites out of the land of Egypt there is one God will be served and worshipped by his people today and there is one way to that one God Jesus said I am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the Father except through me Christianity is an exclusive faith there is no room for Jesus and Buddha there is no room for Jesus and some sort of pervasive world spirit that we all become a part of when we die there is no place for Jesus and Allah there is no place for Jesus and paganism There is no place for Jesus and whatever other God you might invent in your mind. God is the one true God. The Israelites had just seen that. And a few short chapters from now, we're going to see them breaking at least the second and probably the first commandment as well. So what does that tell us? We quickly forget and we quickly break God's law, despite the great blessings that he pours out upon his people. Not only no gods before God, but no idols in place of God. What is an idol? An idol is a representation of a god. For the Philistines, their god was Dagon. He had the body of a man and the tail of a fish, so they made idols that looked like this, right? For the, some of the Canaanites, their god was Molech. They had a representation of him. For some of the Canaanites who worshipped Ashtoreth, it was the, uh, the sometimes crude figure of a woman carved into sacred pillars and groves of trees. There was Baal, there was Ra, there was any number of false gods. And these gods had a representation of themselves that took a particular form. Sometimes it was a merger of a human and an animal form, like with Dagon or like with many of the gods of the Egyptians. Sometimes it was just an image of some object in nature. God says, I will not be worshipped by means of an idol. Why did God say, don't make any image of me? Well, there is no possibility to make an image of God. And, if we make an image of what God has made, we are worshiping something less than God. Paganism makes idols in its own image. What do I mean by that? Look at the Greeks. Look at the Romans. What were their gods like? They were like teenagers or college students. No offense to college students or teenagers. Or children, for that matter, right? They got angry and they smashed things. They didn't plan ahead, and so they got into all sorts of trouble. They didn't control themselves, and it ended in disaster. Their gods were like them, in large versions of themselves. They had great power, but they were not better than them. The God of the Bible is entirely other than His people, cannot be represented by an image. And so, what does this look like? Well, in chapter 22, verse 20... They were to put to death one who sacrificed to other gods. Utterly destroy him. In chapter 23, verses 20 to 33, which I just read a few moments ago, especially verse 24, Don't worship their gods, nor serve them, nor do according to their deeds, but utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. Don't say, this is a nice statue. We'll leave it uh, set up here and we'll admire its beauty and artisticness. We're going to um, use it for some other purpose. God said, break it down, destroy it, have nothing to do with it. Over and over again, up until the point of the exile, when God finally purged this sort of idolatry out of the Israelites, they went after foreign gods so many times. They set up idols in high places throughout the land, They sacrificed their children to these gods. They committed immorality and service to these gods. Over and over again, they committed idolatry. What would be the application for us? Well, I think an easy one would be don't pray to saints instead of God. Those are idols. Icons, images medallions that represent various saints that the so-called church has declared to be intermediaries between us and God, that's idolatry. You find no justification for it in Scripture, so don't do it. Who is our mediator? Not Mary, not St. Nicholas, not whoever else. Jesus. So don't commit that sort of idolatry. What other sorts of idolatry might we commit? We tend to say, well, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't pray to a statue or or worship something like that. I don't think that we should... uh, There's a couple of errors we could fall into. One would be that we draw so sharp a line between ourselves and what the Israelites did that we say, well, I can't possibly commit idolatry like them because they worship statues and I would never worship a statue. The statue was an image of the power that was supposed to stand behind the image that was supposed to give them the thing that they wanted. And when we understand that, I think we recognize that for us, idols tend to be things like dollar bills or maybe not dollar bills so much anymore, what's in your bank account or things that we pour all of our time and energy in or sporting events or movies, or all of these sorts of things. Potentially, there are things borrowed from from worship that we see in connection with these various things. Either the devoting of our time and our focus and our thoughts and our love to something. Think about the guy who has, for example, a, a classic car that he's restored. There's nothing wrong with doing that. But if he pours all of his time into it, if he loves it to the exclusion of his family, his church, his God, that thing can be an idol just as much as the pillar of stone or wood or gold that someone set up in the Old Testament times. Or the person who worships his sports team. He might not see it as a priority to be gathered with God's people, but he would not miss the Super Bowl for the world. We find ourselves in interesting times, right? Sports teams play to empty stadiums or get canceled at the whim of a, of a test that says, all right, now we can't be around each other for this period of time. If nothing else, what is going on in our society right now should show us the emptiness and the futility of idolatry, but a lot of us are not getting the message. Think about for those of you who are stuck at home for six or eight weeks starting back in March if you were like me you probably thought about things to keep yourself busy obviously work but uh, other things as well perhaps you thought well maybe there's something that I could I could buy online and that would be interesting and um, you know whatever else you know what you find out things are empty Don't make you happier. What did most of us miss after those first six or eight weeks? Time with one another, and more importantly, time gathered in worship to God. There is a link between covetousness and idolatry. We'll see that with the Tenth Commandment. And so we should see the... Reality that if our lives are governed by covetousness, that we are practicing a kind of idolatry. Our very society is driven by covetousness. This applies to any manufacturing industry that you would look at. Any, um, whatever industry you would look at. Take something like clothing. I'm not an expert in this, but I think I can describe this for you. Why was it popular to wear a particular type of clothes 20 years ago, and now it's popular again? Because some people said it was popular. Why? Because it's better? No, because they wanted to sell it to you again. Was there anything wrong with last year's style? No. Same thing with, like, I was thinking about this because I was painting the bathroom yesterday. Paint colors in your house. Certain paint colors are more in style now or in the past few years. In 20 years, they'll be the avocado green of my childhood, of all the appliances and what was on the wall. And we'll look back at it and we'll say, why did we do that? But then we'll chase the next thing. When we pursue these things constantly and with all of our focus, this is a kind of idolatry. And apply it to anything else. Certainly, Paul warns us in the New Testament about the danger of participating in pagan worship. He said, I would not have you be sharers in demons. And so, in connection with that, there are certainly things that are associated with pagan worship that we ought to be cautious of in our world today. And this requires thought and care and and patience as we work through these sorts of issues. No gods before God, no idols. Thirdly, don't profane God's name. What's the reason that's given? Chapter 20, verse 7, The Lord will not leave him unpunished, who takes his name in vain. There are less instances in chapter 20 through 23 of what this might look like. But, for example, I think in chapter 22, verse 18... When it says, don't let a sorceress live, I think this ties in perhaps to the first two commandments, but also to this one, because there are those who would take the names of their gods and use them in magic rituals as a kind of of spell or binding to get them to do what they would want to do. Think about in the New Testament, the example of those who, uh, when Paul is ministering in, I believe it was Ephesus, There are the sons of the priest who said, you know what, we're going to go cast out demons like Paul cast out demons. And they adjured the demon by the name of Jesus. Paul's Jesus. We don't know him, but we'll say his name because it has power. What happens? It doesn't work. God's not going to be used as part of a magic spell to have his name as sort of a talisman that will achieve the goal that we want to achieve. This is part of why it says, don't allow a sorceress to live. There are other examples of not profaning God's name. Chapter 22, verse 28. Don't curse God or a ruler of your people. What was it that Job's wife encouraged him to do? Curse God and die. Why would he die? Perhaps because he would be violating this sort of idea. Obviously, Job was long before the Ten Commandments were given. But there was an understanding that to curse God brings a consequence, right? And then chapter 23, verse 13. Don't mention the name of other gods. Perhaps there is a connection there as well. In terms of later applications, we saw one in uh, Matthew 5, but we see it also in Ecclesiastes. Don't make a vow by the name of God which you then fail to keep. That is to take God's name in vain. Don't use God's name as profanity. Why do we call it profanity? Because it's profaning what is holy. God's name should not be an exclamation point standing alone or at the end of your sentence, right? So there are those who would say a phrase like, Oh, my God, as an exclamation, a statement of surprise, an abbreviation in a text conversation. This is to take God's name in vain. And we should consider seriously whether the various euphemisms that are derived from those are appropriate as well. Things like, my gosh, my goodness, those sorts of things. And we hear these phrases regularly, so we just say them without thinking them, but we ought to pay careful attention to what it is that we say that we do not take the name of our God in vain. In connection with where it says in 22, 28, don't curse God or a ruler of your people, I think there is a measure of taking God's name in vain, both in connection with this one and in connection with the honor of your father and mother when we reject authorities that God has established because... We are rejecting God's authority. We are not taking Him and His name seriously. Remember the Sabbath, fourthly. Why? The pattern is creation. Six days God made the world. On the seventh, He rested. What did this look like? In chapter 23, verses 10 through 12, it says, You shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield. But on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so the needy of your people may eat, and whatever they leave the beast of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor, so that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female slave as well as your stranger may refresh themselves. What does this look like in the New Testament? Are Christians today required to follow the Sabbath command of the Ten Commandments. I would say no. The reasons for this are longer that we can cover in detail right now, but let me just lay a few things out for you. The Sabbath looks back to the pattern of creation and looks forward to the rest promised for God's people. Hebrews 4 talks about this extensively. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says not to judge others on the observance of shadows pointing to Christ, In other words, there were those who observed days like the Jewish feast, like the Sabbath. And Paul says, now Gentiles and Jews have come together in the church. The one should not judge the other for observing. The other should not judge the other for not observing. If the Sabbath was to point to the rest that we have in Christ and the future rest that we have in His kingdom, then it is something that receives at least its initial fulfillment in Christ and is no longer binding on the church today. The church met on the first day of the week, and there were those who merged the two concepts, the Puritans, for example, and they said that Sunday is the new Sabbath, so now there's no work to be done. What do we recognize? Think about the early church. How many of them had the day off on Sunday so that it was the day of rest? If you were a slave or worked for anybody else, you didn't have Sunday off. So Sunday was not a day of rest, but of worship. Often in the evening. And so what that means for us is, while there is a place and an argument to be made for the necessity of rest, the necessity of refreshment, the importance of spending time in fellowship with God, and that that it's essential to gather and worship and, and, and fellowship with God's people, that's very clear. The time at which these other things like rest take place is not regulated in the New Testament the way that it was in the Old. Obviously, we have remnants of the Old Testament pattern in our society today in that, at least until more recently, many things were closed on Sunday. I mean, you remember that when I was a kid, and now that's pretty much going away, people still often have Sunday off from their jobs, but there could come a time and place when that no longer is the case. And so if that changes, we should not feel as though we're violating this command, because we have to start meeting in an evening or on a day other than this day. The reason for meeting on Sunday is to commemorate the Lord's re- resurrection. But as God's people, though we follow that pattern, and I think it's the normal pattern and a good pattern to follow, God can be worshipped and should be worshipped on any and every day of the week. God's people can and should gather, not just on a Sunday, but at other times as well. And God is honored by these things. I don't say this to say that we plan to change the service times, I just say this to say it's not about the day, it's about worshiping God for example, in spirit and in truth as God has called us to do. The fifth command honor father and mother. Why? That your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. What are some examples of how this is developed in chapters 20 through 23? Chapter 21, verse 15, He who strikes his father and mother shall surely be put to death. Chapter 17, He who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. This was a serious thing. Why did it carry the death penalty? Because to reject parents in the way that God had established the family was to reject the authority of God himself and was perhaps in some measure to curse God or to strike out toward God And so God took it very seriously and had severe consequences. Um, By way of application, Ephesians 6 repeats this idea with the exception of the idea of the land, because that was something that was focused for the Israelites. But this sort of command, this sort of idea is repeated today. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long upon the earth, right? And we see that pattern with many of these other commands that the ideas are repeated in the New Testament as far as what God expects and requires of His people. Five commands. No gods before God. No idols. No uh, taking God's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day. Honor your father and the mother. Then comes this transition. Five shorter commands. You shall not. And these are directed toward love for fellow man. Love your neighbor as yourself. Loving God with all of who you are will must be the starting point, but it naturally leads to love for others. First of all, don't murder. I say don't murder. Some translations will say you shall not kill. There are different words that are used for murder versus general killing, and this one would be a more specific idea of murder. What would this look like? Well, chapter 21, verses 12 through 36 There's extensive development of different types of injuries that could take place and the appropriate penalties for them. Why is this important? Because Jesus in the New Testament is going to make clear that it's about more than just, do you go strike someone dead? What were the things that God was was forbidding? Specifically, it was this idea of murder, for example, Exodus 21:14. if a man acts presumptuously toward his neighbor so as to kill him craftily, you are to take him even from my altar that he may die. So the scenario is this. Someone perhaps has a grudge against his neighbor, goes and strikes him dead, having plotted and planned and carried it out. He says, even if he's gathered at my altar offering worship to me, seize him, drag him away from it, and put him to death. That's what is in view. That's what's being forbidden here. Manslaughter, our word, was not in view. Verse 13, If he did not lie in wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand, then I will appoint you a place to which you may flee. Tied to verse 12, He who strikes a man so he dies shall be put to death, but if he did not lie in wait for him. So, the ending of someone's life without premeditation and forethought and planning and evil intent is in a different category than murder and there was a place for the place of refuge there were still consequences and penalties right this guy would have to go as we see later in the old testament live in this city sometimes for a number of years until the one who was going to uh... take vengeance for the death of his family member like there was a statute of limitations it was until that person would die So there are parallels perhaps to someone being put in jail for long periods of time for manslaughter right He was confined to that city of refuge. If he was found outside of the city of refuge, then he could be executed. And there's nuances of that and complications that we could certainly talk about at another time. But the focus on it is this. There's a difference between murder and manslaughter and war. Think about this. There are times where God commands the Israelites to go to war. And even at the very end, in chapter 23, he says, I am going to destroy all of the Canaanites... And the Israelites were part of God's plan to destroy them, and God required them to do this, and it wasn't as though the soldiers went out to battle, defeated the Canaanites, killed them in battle, came back, and the priests executed them because they had violated this commandment. That's not what's in view here. When we come to the New Testament by way of application to this command, we see clearly that it is not just an issue of Do you commit the act of murder? There are a bunch of things that lead up to that act of murder that are also forbidden and excluded by this. This is seen from Exodus 21, 12 through 36, because there were injuries where someone could lose an eye or a hand or or be hurt in some way, but would not die. Those had penalties because what God had in view was not just the ending of someone's life, that's sort of like the, the end point of all of this, but even the very attitudes that would lead to that, right? So Jesus says in Matthew 5, don't hate your brother. Don't call him a fool. Don't bear a grudge against him. Why? Because like with Cain and Abel, that leads up to this act of murder and God had all of these things in view. What is the application for us? Deal with anger. Deal with other bitterness and hatred and all of these other things before they end in the act of murder because God will hold us accountable for all of those sins even up to that one itself. Secondly, don't commit adultery. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 11 had regulations on marriage because in order for you to understand what adultery is, there has to be a definition of what marriage is. Or, chapter 22, 16 through 17 made it clear that God was excluding not just adultery, which we had defined specifically as someone committing immorality and breaking their their marriage bond, right? Uh, But other kinds of immorality as well. Chapter 22, 16 through 17, if a man seduces a virgin, that would be immorality outside of marriage. Or chapter 19 or chapter 22 verse 19 whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death there are other kinds of gross immorality that are excluded by the command don't commit adultery and so those who would say God only said don't commit adultery he wasn't concerned about anything else are missing the point given the context of that command what does that look like in the New Testament again Jesus words in Matthew 5 not just adultery but lust and desire and all the things that lead up to that final consummation of that desire are excluded by what God required of his people. Don't steal. What was in view here? What was in view here was also the idea of oppression. Chapter 21 through 27 don't wrong a stranger or oppress him, don't afflict a widow or an orphan. Uh, it also excludes stealing from God in terms of offering. Chapter 22, verses 29 through 30. You shall not delay the offering from your harvest and your vintage, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. So when God says don't steal, he doesn't just mean don't go to someone's house, break in, take all his stuff. He also means don't oppress people. There's ish, things described here in terms of oppressive interest that is charged toward fellow Israelites. There's things here about not stealing from God the rightful sacrifices and offerings that He was owed. What about for us? The picture in Ephesians 4 is this. Not only are we not to steal, but the entire disposition and bent of our hearts is to change from being grasping to being giving, right? Think about what it says in Ephesians 4. Let the one who steals, steal no longer. Let him work so that he can give from what God has provided for him. So the entire heart attitude changes from what can I get to what can I give. And so God is concerned about more than just do you walk into a store and steal stuff out of it. God is concerned with if you get a birthday gift or an unexpected bonus or something like that is your first thought, I'm going to go on this trip. I'm going to buy this thing that I really want. Or do you think about your obligations to God and to your fellow man? not only don't steal but don't bear false witness some translations have here don't lie and certainly lying is in other places contrasted with God's holy character of being honest and faithful but here the emphasis is on our uh... bearing false witness toward other people what are some of the additional applications of this or examples of it bearing a false report turning aside after the multitude to pervert justice, chapter 23, verse 2, being partial to a poor man, chapter 23, verse 3. You see the overlap here between these, right? If you have hatred, or you commit adultery, or you steal, or you bear false witness, there's points at which these different things connect. Taking a bribe was also forbidden with bearing false witness. What's the application for us today in terms of not bearing false witness it would be certainly to avoid things like slander it would to be avoid things that uh, certainly to avoid lying about another person to their harm it would to be to avoid things like gossip tearing another person down uh and we have to watch this in the context of our church assemblies right we may have or at least say that we have a genuine concern for another person but if someone tells us something over here and we repeat that thing over here in the guise of a prayer request when it's not something that this person wants to be public knowledge then we are, if not bearing false witness we are, ju- we are expressing the same attitude that stands behind bearing false witness and so just because we say well I wouldn't lie about someone in court don't think that we never struggle with do we violate this commandment or not and then finally covetousness And it's interesting that as I read through chapters 20 through 23, it was difficult to find any specific verses that seemed tied to being a development of this command. What does this look like? And then it occurred to me, what is covetousness? Covetousness, according to the New Testament, is a form of idolatry, so it's tied in with the second commandment. And covetousness, in at least two notable Old Testament examples and some in the new as well, links together idolatry, links together murder, theft, bearing false witness. Think about David. David coveted his neighbor's wife, so he had his neighbor killed. He bore false witness against him in the representation that he gave to his officer about what he wanted him, why he wanted him killed. He committed adultery with his wife. He committed idolatry because he wanted a thing instead of God. Think about Ahab's sin against Naboth. Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard. So he hired people to testify against him in court. He had him killed. And so at least in those two, covetousness links with other commandments that God said, don't do these things. What about for us today? As I said, in connection with idolatry, covetousness is woven into the fabric of our American society. And it's deep down in our hearts. What does it look like? It looks like God has filled my life to overflowing with material blessings. And I'm like, I don't like that thing. I want this thing over here. God has given you a loving family. And I'm like, I wish I had this family over here. God has given you a job to support your needs, and you're like, I'd rather have that job over there. Covetousness permeates our hearts and our lives, particularly in the day and age in which we live. It's idolatry. It is a sign of an unbeliever, 1 Corinthians 5.10 and 6.10, and so should not characterize our lives. And one other application that we might squirm under, but... Get-rich-quick schemes are a type of covetousness. 1 Timothy 5, read through that sometime. People will say, well, if you become a part of this company and rise through the ranks, then you'll have vacations and you'll have all of these amazing benefits and all these people will be having a steady income stream and you won't have to work and all of these other sorts of things. I'm not saying it never works for anybody. But there's a lot of people it doesn't work for. And certainly, if you are setting your hope in that instead of in God's provision for you, then your life is full of covetousness and idolatry. And so, whatever their thing might be, selling some product, um, and and I I point this out because it seems to be often targeted at -at stay-at-home moms or people who can't get out and do regular work And so perhaps there's people who made these appeals to you. Think very seriously about the when and the why you would pursue something like that. Is it showing oppression toward other people because it schemes and takes advantage of them and offers them false hopes and doesn't deliver on them? Can we do that in honesty toward other people? Do we pursue it because we think it will get us something that we want faster than God's timetable that's laid out for us? Take that sort of covetousness seriously. Ask yourself, why do I want this thing? Why do I want this experience? In whatever aspect. And ask yourself, is my life characterized by covetousness? Because I think more often than we'd admit, it is. We all struggle with this. In these many examples, we see that the law laid the foundation. The later revelation makes it clear that God is concerned about heart issues. And even the context here describes some of those things. Greed, lust, hatred, and so on. Not just do you avoid the worst example of the thing that the Ten Commandments forbids. Not just do you murder someone, but also do you even hate someone. Not just do you commit adultery or some other kind of immorality but do you have those thoughts and desires in your heart? Not just do you actually steal everything that belongs to your neighbor, but do you take advantage of him and cheat him? God is concerned about anything and everything in this broad spectrum of sins that has lesser and greater examples of how bad they can be. And so He's not concerned in that sense about the mere letter of the law. I want to clarify something here. One of the greatest condemnations of the Pharisees is Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you tithe mint and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you should have done and not neglected the other. God required both of the Israelites, right? Tithe to me and show justice and mercy and faithfulness. But don't think just because you do all the nitty-gritty details of what God requires, he says here to the Israelites, that God is happy with you if you neglect the more important heart issues. Both were required, but the outward had no significance without the inward. So to the point of, is God only concerned about the letter of the law? And what does this look like for today? We should not go beyond what God has said by replacing it with our own made-up rules for holiness. Jesus did not do this. Jesus did not say... Well, Moses said this, forget about what Moses said, do this other thing. Jesus said, here's what Moses said, and here's what Moses had in mind, because a lot of it is developed in these chapters afterward, and so here's what I require of you as well. What the Pharisees did was not that, not what Jesus did. They said, God said this, we're going to add this thing so that we avoid breaking this, And eventually it ended up that they were just doing all these things that they had added instead of the thing that God said to do in the first place. So we need to be careful. Because we may be tempted to say, well, God said this is sin, so I don't want to get too close to that line. So I'm also going to say this is sin, and this is sin, and this is sin, and this is sin, and this is sin. And and now i become concerned about these things over here instead of what God had actually said. God says that it's sinful for me to parade around naked, so I'm going to invent a whole bunch of rules about clothing so that I can look down on and judge other people. That's legalism, that's sin. Okay? Don't add to what God has said because you're going to end up doing the thing that you've added instead of the thing that God actually said. But it goes the other way as well. The other way is this. God said this, but I'm going to come up with a reason that I don't have to do this. Right? God actually said, Don't commit adultery. And so there's people who come to the other side of that from here. You know, the Pharisees, without all these extra rules and regulations, here's all the scenarios in which a woman can never even speak to a man, potentially, something like that. But well, we come on this side, and the people who want to excuse sin are going to come over here and say, Well, when God said adultery, we're going to define it really narrowly so that it doesn't include the sin that we want to commit. Or when God says, here's what marriage is supposed to look like, we're going to redefine that so that we can say things like, love is love, and if, you, if it feels right, do it, and all of those sorts of things. You can't do that. And we're going to redefine murder so that it only includes if I go out and I shoot my neighbor dead, but it doesn't include me going and killing a baby, because a baby's not really a person. We're going to redefine that. They have violated God's law because they've gone below what God has said and taken away from what God has said, which is also sin. Don't add to what God has said. Don't take away from what God has said. Follow what God has said. And what God has said is not just the epitome of the sin, but all the steps leading up to the sin. So what does God require of His people? Love God with all of who you are and love your neighbor as yourself and that requires a complete transformation and the only way that that's possible is through the work of Jesus Christ. Because as also we looked at this morning in Sunday School Hour, you and I cannot do this on our own. Be perfect as your Father in Heaven is perfect. You might go a day, a week, a month, maybe, without sinning by your own power, but you cannot go a year, a decade, a lifetime in your own strength without sinning, and even if you could, then those other sins that you had already committed would drag you down to hell. You need Jesus and what He did in your place both to be saved from your sin, Both to be saved from the penalty of the law, which every one of us have broken, and to fulfill the law that God requires of His people, which from the very beginning was some form of love God with all of who you are and love your neighbor as yourself. Adam and Eve walked with God. They were to love Him with all of who they are. They were to show love to one another. Abraham had faith in God. And some measure of these same sorts of things. The law of Moses explains these things here. The New Testament church, there are all these things laid out for us. Paul says, I'm not bound by the law of Moses, but I follow the law of Christ. What does that mean? Love God with all of who you are. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's not just something for the Israelites. And so in that sense, the Ten Commandments and what it embodies is still binding on us today. Not all of the necessarily the regulations in chapters 21 through 23 because they find their consummation and their fulfillment in Christ and His work. But loving God with all of who you are, loving your neighbor as yourself, is what God requires of His people in this and every age. You cannot do it without Jesus' presence in your heart and life. Turning from your sin, turning to Him is the only way to find relief from the penalty of the law that you've broken. But having turned from your sin and turned to God through Jesus, He can and does give us the strength to keep His law, to love Him with all of who we are, to love our neighbor as ourselves, and to be what Israel failed to be, a testimony of God's law and God's character to those around them. So do you... Love God with all of who you are and your neighbors, yourself. I think if we're honest, we recognize we all have much room to grow in these areas, starting with trusting in Christ, empowered by the Spirit every day, looking to that day when we will do these things perfectly even as we do not yet do. Let's pray. Lord, we see that we all sin and fall short of your glory. Even as those who have begun to follow after you as your people through Jesus, we still sin and fall short of your glory. We are not perfect as our Father in heaven is perfect. Sometimes, because we say we cannot achieve perfection in this life, we feel like we shouldn't even try to improve. We get lazy. We don't see sin as sin. We make excuses for the things that we like we start chasing after other commands and regulations that we have invented instead of focusing on what you actually require of us. And so whether we add to what you have said or take away from what you have said, instead of pursuing what you have said, we are sinning. Help us to repent of that, Lord. Lord, help us to find hope and strength in the person of Christ. Apart from him, we would have no forgiveness of sin We would still be making sacrifices day after day and year after year, looking for a hope that had not yet come. And if he had come and had not been raised, then as Paul said, our hope would be in vain. We would be of all people most miserable. We thank you, Lord, that we are not most miserable, but that we have a living hope and a new way open through the body and blood of Christ to have access to you, not through a tabernacle, not through a temple, but directly through Jesus himself. We stand in awe of the greatness of your plan and your purposes that you are carrying out in us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.